Welcome to The New Talent Code, a podcast with practical insights dedicated to empowering change agents in HR to push the envelope in their talent functions. We're your hosts. I'm Lihia Zamora. And I'm Jason Serrato. We're bringing you the best thought leaders in the talent space to share stories about how they are designing the workforce of the future, transforming processes, rethinking old constructs, and leveraging cutting-edge technology to solve today's pressing talent issues. It's what we call the new talent code. So if you're looking for practical, actionable advice to get your workforce future ready, you've come to the right place. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the new Talent Code brought to you by me, Lihia, and my co-host, Jason. Hey, Jason. Say hi, Jason. Hi, Lihia. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually super excited. Normally, I don't sleep well and I drag out of bed, but today I jumped out of bed. I am so excited with our guest, Josh Bellis, today. Long, long time friend. Yes, you're my friend now, Josh. And why is that? Because every time we talk... I learned so much. I come away enlightened. Josh is so humble. He never makes me feel bad for all the ignorant questions I ask around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Quite the expert, let me tell you. So let me brag a little bit about you first, Josh. Josh today is a global TA programs lead and head of America's recruitment at PTC. For those of you who don't know PTC, it's a global technology company with, gosh, over 6,000 employees in 30 countries and my goodness, over $1 billion in revenue, quite a large organization. But what's most impressive and what I love about Josh, he's worked for some major conservative brands like NASDAQ, Fox News, and in his free time, he also lectures at Columbia University on human capital management and integrated talent management strategies. So for those of you out there listening, hi, mom, do take one of his <laughs> courses. I am telling you, you're going to learn a lot. So let's kick this off. Welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, you know, I'm super excited. We're going to learn a lot today. You know that in general, Jason and I talk a lot about nonlinear or what we call non-traditional career paths, especially for those people like myself or like Jason, who, you know, never set out to be doing this job when I was 18. So I'm curious. I know you've worked for, as I mentioned before, some really impressive companies. I know you have an unbridling passion for this topic. So I want to know. Other than being top of mind today and making you in high demand, how did you get started? And what was the reason for this specialization? Like why recruitment? Why diversity, equity, and inclusion? So actually, my interest in HR started when I was in high school. I got a side job at McDonald's. Where else? And thought I'd be there for three months until something serious came along. And then like, I think I was there for almost six years with breaks and college and stuff. But I... I was always fascinated by all the, the, the managers, the shift managers who were like, I don't have someone on fries. I don't have someone to make sandwiches. I don't have anyone who knows the station, you know? And I'm like, why don't you just train more people on more stations and then you'd be fine. So I just took this interest in like, I was like, I'm learning all the stations, you know? And that kind of led to me becoming a crew trainer, a crew chief. Like I became a manager as soon as I turned 18. And I... I kind of used some of what McDonald's had already prepared in their very early version of e-learning and created this, this training program. 
and I taught the managers how to use the program. And then the owner of the franchise asked me to go to all of his six stores and teach each of the groups how to do it. And that was kind of the the starting introduction. Point. <laughs> yeah, look at you, mini entrepreneur. Yeah. And at what point did did this passion, I mean, how did this evolve, this passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion? I I mean, I'm adopted. I'm a minority adopted into a white family, right? This has been a topic of conversation literally since I was born. So I think it's always kind of been there. And I think it was just a natural transition into the workplace for me and getting into the workplace and then also finding my comfort zone and actually talking about it and kind of being myself, which took a while, honestly. I think some, because the workplaces, maybe they lent themselves more or less to that. But I think it's also just about my own personal journey and being comfortable with who I am and feeling like you don't have to look like something in order to get where you want. Yeah. Now I'm understanding your passion, but also your degree of empathy for other people. I know Jason is chomping at the bit. Uh, Jason himself ran recruiting for UTC for over 11 years and is also passionate about this topic. Jason, where do you want to get him started? I think there's a lot of things we can talk about. Your background and your passion is so interesting and also so similar to some of the things I've worked on. So, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to help individuals crack the new talent code, which is a big part of trying to approach the future with new solutions and new approaches to help us get to where we're going. Because more than ever, how we got here isn't necessarily how we're going to get there. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how do you help organizations really address diversity, equity, and inclusion at scale? I mean, for example, we've seen in the last few years with everything going on in the world, there's been a rise in organizations investing in diversity and hiring for diversity officers and increasing the executive kind of presence and position of diversity officers. But I know it's more than just hiring a diversity officer. So how do we kind of put diversity initiatives into diversity programs? You touched on one of my soapboxes, so I'll try not to stand on it too long. (laughs) But yes, all the companies hopping on the wave every time there's a shooting, every time it bubbles up in the media, you can literally look at job posts and see all these, you know, new diversity roles. And I think what's happened now is, you know, employees are saying, we're tired of hearing about it. Like, what are you doing? And so to your point, I think prospective employees of companies, they want to hear from the leadership that they care about it, number one, but also what are you doing about it? And I think that's where so many organizations are out there publishing, right? They're saying, this is what we're doing. And by this year, we're going to be here. And I think when they make that transparent vow, it really puts their back against the wall to actually focus on it and do something about it. So I think there's some of that, you know, some organizations who are coming out and being transparent with what those what those numbers look like or what those initiatives are. But then I think inside the organization, you know, it's really about a culture shift and it's really about making the whole company find what they can do to advance the diversity initiatives. And I think for too long, it's just sat with the DEI people. Oh, well, that's their that's their issue to figure out, right? I think that, sure, there are key roles in the organization where people kind of do need to step up and they need to challenge status quo processes or why we have certain requirements on jobs and things like that. You're in a position of power to do something. But I also think 
that down to the individual employee level, you can be looking at how you write communications out to your team. Are you using inclusive language? Are you, you know, are you raising your hand? Are you speaking up when you see something that isn't right? And in management roles, I think there's particular responsibility for people to make sure that it's not the old buddy system of, oh, well, I play golf with this guy on the weekend, so that's who I'm going to put up for the promotion. Like, what are people driving toward and how are we actually measuring people in our organization and making sure that those are also equitable processes? But Josh, here's a question and I'm going to, I'm going to be devil's advocate, right? You can't improve anything you don't measure. So the question is, and you touched on something that I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, today, of course, it's illegal. I believe the SEC is going to require that companies report on their diversity metrics going forward. So that's also a push for companies to get on the bandwagon and assess where they're at. But there are some internal conflicts. Like I see both sides of the equation. I'm a hiring manager. I'm under the gun to make my, you know, my goals for the year. And guess what? It's not that when I interview, I only hire white men. (laughs) I'm trying to hire the best candidate. And the reality is it's a really difficult market right now. And then I still get pushback. So how do you balance that? And then the other side of the question is, do you think this should be part of performance reviews? In other words, me as a hiring manager, should the diversity of my team be part of my of my performance review? Should it affect my bonus payment? This is tough. This is a really tough situation because so right now, you know, I'm at a technology company, right? There's not 50% female diversity in the engineering pool of talent. So I think it is worth taking a step back, even if that means that Yes, you're hiring slower, but I do think it's worth taking a step back and actually thinking about what is the available market and what can we realistically hit with that? Because even when you start talking about like a 10% increase in like underrepresented minorities in a company, in a company of a thousand people, that's really tough. That's that's a lot of numbers because not only do you have to hold on to all those people that you currently have, you also have to find new people and bring them in. So if you're having attrition issues and you're trying to bring them in, that's really hard. So I would say, yes, take a step back, build a process, understand the market that you're in, understand the levers that you have available. So like right now with all the remote work, you know that's a huge opportunity to increase diversity. If your company is in a place that you've, you've been asking people to come into the office, you keep going back to the same pool or you have to dig into your pockets deeper and, and move people to your location. So now there's opportunity for that. But I do think it's about building the right processes around recruiting, asking all those questions up front, right? What is really required of this position? Because I think a lot of times we throw in all these like kitchen sink elements. And then what you end up with is all these qualified candidates who make it into the process because they do have the baseline requirements, but really the hiring managers only looking at people with the extras. So if the extras are a qualifying part of the role, then put them in the requirements because what you're doing is you're watering down the pool for those few diverse applicants in your process. And then in terms of measurement and holding people accountable, I 100% think that it needs to be part of goals and it needs to be tied to bonus payments because if we don't have an accountability, we don't have anything at all. 
So I do think that it's about building the right process. It's about coaching managers, educating them on the right way to go about doing that. So it's not just like, oh yeah, look at the, this person you know, fits this description, let's hire them. It is about still hiring quality people, but it's about building this process and making it so that managers, they do have to pay attention to these dashboards. They do have to pay attention to how we're going and sourcing these candidates and bringing them into the company. Well, Josh, I agree 100% with everything you've said. And I agree as well with how difficult and competitive it is to recruit and find talent, especially in today's market. But even with all that being said, and even with acknowledging how difficult and competitive it is to find talent, sometimes that's the easy part. Sometimes the harder part is building an inclusive environment where people want to stay and also are aware and encouraged to grow. So I've heard you repeat a couple times the word transparency. I've also heard you mention kind of maybe proximity with the golf buddy story you shared, but you also talked about the opportunity we have in DE&I with remote and hybrid work. So with all that being said, how do you kind of look forward and kind of crack the new talent code to help kind of change the culture or build a culture that's more inclusive and more encouraging of development, especially in hybrid and remote work environments? Well, this is 100% about culture transformation. And I think even organizations that have had amazing cultures, they've been very defined. Like if you look at the best, I won't name all of them, but you know, the best of group, there's lunch in the office and they do your laundry and a masseuse will stop by your office and it's all tied around the office. So now we're all forced right now into thinking about this culture shift that's affecting the smallest of companies and the ones that have had the best reputation all along. So everyone's kind of actually at the same point, because what you hear often is like, oh, well, cultural shift is so hard and it's going gonna, it's, it's so much work and we've got to you know, re-examine our employer value proposition. And, and yes, yeah, some of that is definitely you know, worth a look if that's the case. But I do think that the culture shift is essential. And one thing I think to bring up that I think is the most pivotal when you're thinking about this culture shift, it's not a really, I mean, it's psychological safety. It's a new term. It's not a new thing though. I'm just spoiler alert. I'm sorry for all those people out there writing books on psychological safety. But the idea is that we're training managers, we're training leaders to be open to feedback coming from all directions, right? 360 reviews are no new thing. This is an age-old method of getting feedback to people. But I do think what you're seeing is in organizations where leaders are looking for criticism, right? Good criticism, right? Constructive ways of saying, hey, you know what? I don't know if that's really the best strategy. Did you think of doing it this way? Providing that environment where employees have the ability to share their thoughts openly without being worried about, oh, is this going to affect my this merit season? Like, is this going to affect my merit increase? Is this going to keep me from getting a promotion if I speak up? And I think that's really where a lot of employees are starting to like throw the flags because the reality is a lot of people, even if it's never been said, right? No one's ever said, don't challenge the boss, right? It's something that's a no-no. 
you know? And so it's like bosses need to, you know, leadership, management need to come out and say, what is wrong with this? Poke all the holes in it, you know? So there are a lot of great books, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there about this concept, but I think that's really the most pivotal thing is the companies that are the furthest on that scale will be the most successful with this culture shift and organizations that continue sort of the same age-old tactics are going to be the ones that get left behind. It's interesting with the opportunity in front of us for just how much appetite there is for potential change. As people are trying to put strategies together and, and like I said, maybe turn programs into initiatives, like what are some of the ways you can really operationalize DE&I in an organization? Or what are some of the, it's not a silver bullet or a single solution approach, but what are some of the levers and kind of activities we can really kind of lean into and push forward in kind of the new world of work? Yeah, I think I'll talk about two things. One would be thinking about decentralizing DEI, right? I mean, I'm not saying that companies should not have a head of DEI. But I am saying that the traditional way that we have DEI groups does not lend itself well to making change because they're sitting in a silo. Then you've got your talent management team. Then you've got your talent acquisition. Everyone is like in their own group. But the change that needs to occur is actually within the training programs, within the succession planning, within performance management, within acquisition, employer brand, all the other groups that are functioning. They need a DEI expert to be helping to figure out what are the processes that we're putting in place. And what we've done is we've put these people sort of in a glass room in the middle of HR and lock the door. And that's it. We're done. (laughs) And now we're diverse. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just like, they're like miming out like what needs to happen in these other functions. And they're trying to influence people, but they have no power of telling me, you know, well, Josh, this is, the, this is how the, the recruiting process needs to go in order for it to be equitable. So we need to decentralize that. The other thing, you know, is more of the grassroots, the employee, you know, there's all these employee resource groups, tons of companies are doing it. I think it's great. I think we keep doing it. But we need to move it out of being a social thing alone, right? Where it's just like, great, we're celebrating Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's great to celebrate these cultural holidays and events and you know to celebrate Pride and June and all this stuff. But making these groups into business resource groups, which again, it's not a new term, but it's been very slow to be adopted. And the idea is, what are our five biggest challenges we have in the business right now? Why don't we give, put some of these groups together? You've got 12 groups, great. We put two, three groups together. We tell them, hey, this is our biggest challenge facing the company right now. How do we fix it? And then you put all these different minds of people, because in any of these ERGs, you've got already got people from sales, from customer success, from engineering, from all over the place. And they're coming together and they're coming up with actual business solutions. All the data is there to show that diverse organizations, they are more profitable. They're more successful at holding on to their employees. I mean, all the data is there. So why not take these big problems and put them in these diverse groups within your organization and see how you can grow it? But Josh, isn't that 
aren't you essentially saying there's sort of a maturity curve then? I feel like all the ERGs that started, you know, and I'm I'm part of a couple of them at our company, maybe just started with awareness, which is is potentially the first step, right? Driving awareness. And yeah, some of it is social and getting together and feeling heard and empowerment. And then maybe this is the natural evolution and the next step. And it was something I was going to ask you about in your experience, because I feel like you've done this again and again and again, right? Instituted these processes, structures to drive outcomes in all the companies that you've been at. Do you see a maturity curve? Do you see this progressing? And then are there companies that you, without mentioning any names, you think are ahead of the curve? Yeah, So there absolutely is a maturity curve. You could hire a myriad of consulting companies (laughs) to show you where you are on the curve. But the reality is, yeah, if you're at zero or you're at sort of negative, which I've also seen that, yes, you need to just build an ERG, get some employees interested in saying, hey, I want to be part of this. That's absolutely step one. But I think what happens is then it stalls out. And so you've got to keep climbing. You've got to keep moving. So absolutely, I think awareness. So you could build this bottom up or top down. The most successful is when the leadership is on board from the beginning. Absolutely. But I've also seen employees say, well, we're going to have this group and we're going to show the leadership why they should care about this. And then they go on a mission to find the data, to put together the case, to get the leadership interested, and then they continue climbing. But you've got to have the resources. Like after you get the awareness and the ERG set up, if they don't have resources, if there's nothing really behind it, it's going to stall out. And to answer the second part of your question, honestly, I think a lot, there are some companies out there, some of the bigger companies, right, that can... They have every diversity tool. No, they're on every job board. They go to every event. I still don't think they have it right. I think that you do need money. You do need resources. You do need support. Ideally, you you need someone to run the ERG program who is, that is literally their job. Because for everybody else, this is just something extra they're doing, right? It's a part-time thing, yeah. Exactly. So you need some hands and you need some dollars. But the fact is, just coming out and making a statement that we care and we're going to hit this goal by this point, you might be able to buy the people theoretically by making these ridiculous offers and going to these events. You might be able to buy enough people to hit your goal, but you can't buy the culture shift. And eventually those people are going to be spinning out and you're just going to be like replacing them, replacing them. And you're back in the same place. Exactly. So I don't think anyone has really figured out, figured it out yet. I'd love to see (laughs) somebody challenge me on that, frankly, but I just don't think anybody has really figured it out. And mostly because companies haven't emphasized this as that important to figure out. If they were, we would have figured it out by now. And it hasn't been made part of embedded in to how we do things. Josh, one last question I have for you is when we think about organizations increasingly taking skills-based talent approaches, whether it's for acquisition or evaluation or performance management, as you said. And we're talking about managers adjusting to a hybrid or remote working world where it's all about maybe productivity more than proximity, right? And results and achievements versus maybe how and when you work or what you look like while you're doing it, 
Do you see this as an increased opportunity or advantage for DE&I? Or are there other things that we should potentially consider or be aware of as things we need to kind of look out for going forward? I think it's a huge advantage because we're moving away from the things that we traditionally think make someone qualified. You went to this school. So by virtue of the fact that you may be skated by at this really top-tier university, you are more qualified than someone who got a 4.0 at some university you've never heard of because you've worked at some prestigious organizations, right? So I do think that actually looking at what is what are the bullet points under that on someone's resume, that's what's really important. And I think looking at those transferable skills, because for a lot of underrepresented groups, they don't have the connections to get into these things. I grew up in a very middle-class family. I could never have gone and done internships in the summer. Like I had to work to go back to school next semester. So I can't tell you how many managers I've come across that are like, oh, well, that person's only worked at Starbucks for a year. And this person did an eight-week internship at Google. So I grew up in an entirely different country. Never mind not having connections. Yeah. So it really is about unpacking that. And I think for candidates, if they they don't even know what skills they have. It's so funny. You tell people like, okay, write a list of your skills. And they immediately go to technical things. Okay, I know Microsoft. I know coding language if I'm an engineer. But they left everything else that they've done. They, maybe they led a volunteer project. They did all these projects in school. You're getting skills, learning. Maybe they raised children. Exactly. So, I mean, so I think there's a lot here. I think the future And I think these skill-based, frankly, things that are more artificial intelligence-based are actually helping us get away from Boolean search. If I need a recruiter right now, I go in, I type recruiter and five years experience and X industry. We need to get away from that because how can you be what you've never been before? You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So I think the skills-based approach is absolutely essential to not only finding new talent for organizations, but growing and developing it. Which is a perfect segue to my question, my last question for you, Josh, along the line of uh, someone had believed in your potential to pursue a different career path than the one you're in today, uh, potentially based on some of those adjacent skills that you have that are difficult to unearth. What other passion would you have pursued? Where would you be today? Yeah, I tell people that I fought, <laughs> I fought my way trying to get out of this whole industry. <laughs> You're too good at it. I really enjoyed, you know, I did like a minor in education in college. And then I, during the financial crisis, I got my master's in education. I taught in DC public schools. I absolutely loved it, but there was no job available. And I ended up continuing on the path I was already on. And here we are. But I, I found ways to build high school program, you know, high school internship programs and do different things to stay close to the to the learning space, as well as, you know, teaching, as you mentioned. You came full circle because you started the training at McDonald's. Exactly. (laughs) Excellent. Well, listen, we've kind of run out of time, but to be honest, I can tell from Jason's face, he has a lot more questions to ask you. So we might just have to invite you back to another episode with Josh Bellis. Thank you so much, Josh, for making the time today. This was amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to The New Talent Code. This is a podcast produced by Eightfold AI. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit us at eightfold.ai. 
and you can find us on all your favorite social media sites. We'd love to connect and continue the conversation. 